Welcome to As We Like It, a podcast in which we talk about movie adaptations of Shakespeare. I'm Avon. I'm Mark. And I'm John. And today we're going to be talking about the movie Cymbeline from 2014. It's directed by Michael Almereda, who also adapted or wrote the screenplay. It stars Ethan Hawke, Ed Harris, Mila Jovovich, John Leguizamo, Penn Badgley, and Dakota Johnson. So this is a movie that it does actually use the text of Shakespeare, and we'll get to that in a moment, but this is not a play that most people know very well. It's a late romance. So, John, why don't you give us a summary of the plot of the play, if you can? Um, I do suggest that people might want to go and look up a good extended summary, too, but just to get us all on the same page, and give us a rundown of what the play does. I will do my best. This play is notorious for its uh, complex plot, as we shall see. So we've got an ancient Britain king, you know, Britain, B-R-I-T-O-N, ancient British king, Cymbeline, who has a daughter, Imogen, or Imogen, and he doesn't have an heir, as we'll learn why, and he wants her to marry his stepson, basically, his wife's son from a previous marriage, the queen. She doesn't have a name. But she's in love with this lower class guy named Posthumus. Cymbeline is not having it, so he banishes Posthumus. Posthumus goes to Italy, and in Italy he comes across this swaggering fellow named uh, Giacomo or Giacomo. And just because Giacomo wagers... uh, wagers that he can have sex with the virgin Imogen, and they make this bet. I should rewind real quick, too, because before the two-part, Posthumus and Imogen, they exchange a ring and a bracelet. So Posthumus gets her ring, and Imogen gets Posthumus's bracelet. So for this wager, Posthumus says he'll give the ring to Giacomo if he can show proof that this happens. So, Giacomo tries, he miraculously gets back, get, gets over to ancient Britain, and then and he's spurned by Imogen, but he does this ruse where he sneaks into a trunk and gets evidence of her bedroom, brings it back to Posthumus, and, you know, Posthumus thinks that this is all going to, that, that she's been unfaithful, and has his faithful servant Pisanio, orders him to kill Imogen. Meanwhile, the Romans, uh, they they expect tribute from Cymbeline, and Cymbeline says no. So there's that conflict going on. Meanwhile, again, we cut to Wales, where there's this guy named Bellarius, who also got banished by Cymbeline. I think Bellarius used to be a soldier, a faithful soldier to Cymbeline, but for whatever reason, they had a falling out. Bellarius, before he was banished, kidnapped uh, Cymbeline's two sons way back, and he raised them in the wilderness. And then at some point in time, Pisanio tells, I told you guys this would be complicated. At some point in time, Pisanio tells uh, Imogen that, I forget exactly what sets it in motion, I apologize, uh, but she ends up dressing up as, uh, I think she learns that, that Posthumus wants to kill her, so she ends up escaping by dressing up as a boy She wanders into Wales and gets taken up by the three, Bellarius and the two, Cymbeline's two sons that Bellarius raised. And at some point, I guess out of loneliness or desperation, she ends up taking this thing, 
uh, this medicine. I forgot to tell you this other plot where <laughs> the stepson, his name is Cloten. He is in love with, I guess we could say he's in love or in lust with uh, Imogen. And the queen wants to kill Imogen so that her son can just become king. So the queen wants her son, who's been, you know, the stepson to the king to become king and tries to get this poison. But the doctor knows how bad she is, actually gives him a sleeping potion instead. That's going on at the same time. So then, I think I might just fast forward here. Um, we the, the, the twin boys and whales end up killing Cloten. Imogen thinks uh, that Cloten, dressed, who ends up dressing up in Posthumus' clothes, is the dead Posthumus. People get captured by the, the Romans, and then they end up getting freed. And then all at the very end, the truth comes out. And everybody, everybody comes back together and, you know, Giacomo reveals that he had made this ruse and uh, the two get married. The two boys reunite with their father and, 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 and Belarius gets forgiven. So it's not a big deal that, uh, that Imogen's not marrying royalty uh, because Sibylline's now got his sons. The queen kills herself after she learns that Cloten's dead, so that's taken care of. And then we learn that it was the queen who was telling the king not to pay Romans tribute. So then we've got that all wrapped up in the end, too. So it's a very complicated plot. I underscore what Avon said. Read the Wikipedia page or read whatever plot summary, because um, it's really going to help you understand our discussion of the movie here. Well done. Yeah, it is. They, the movie does simplify it somewhat, though. Not, not as much lot, as you no, might think, no. but it does simplify some parts of it. But I had not read the play since I did a whole... I read through all the Shakespeare plays in a row one year, but it was in my teens. And oh, I wow. don't remember assembling it all from it. I might as well have never read it. So I watched the movie before I reread the play. And it was interesting. And then I sat down and read the play and was like, oh, that's what was going on. Oh, that yeah. makes so much more sense. <laughs> Yeah, it, and and it's this is a question of of genre more than anything else. Mm -hmm. it, uh, you know, this is what the the romances are like. They're these off the wall plots with supposed deaths and people being reunited at the end and kidnap children. Kidnap kid, children yeah. are a real big important element of yeah. romances. Yeah, and this goes all the way back to the Greek the Greek novel. novels. Mm -hmm. It really does. The whole play reads like, in terms of its its plot, reads like one of those Greek novels or Roman novels, um, which are all about children kidnapped by pirates and miraculously reunited with their long lost royal father and girls traduced, but somehow miraculously they maintain their virginity anyway and end up marrying the poor person who ends up being noble or, you know, just, and there's always at least six or seven plots going on at the same time. So it, it just reads exactly like that. Yeah. And I, I'm actually a really big fan of Shakespeare's late romances. This is the one that I know the least, mm -hmm. um, but I'm quite a big fan of, of that kind of genre. And... Which are the other ones that fit so into the that Tempest? group? So The Tempest. The Tempest and A Winter's Tale, I think, is a late romance, too. Tale. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So obviously I know The Tempest, but Pericles and the Winter, A Winter's Tale, I don't know well either. Yeah, per Pericles... Pericles is an interesting play. It's um, Pericles is kind of uh, textual problems there. <laughs> yeah, I think it was co-written, but it does have it does have a lot of the same elements of you know, the kidnapping and uh, the dead mm -hmm. the dead yeah. come back to life and there's chasteness that carries with them with pirates. There's a lot of pirates too. Um, there's a, pirates. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
There's weird cannibalism and incest in Pericles, too. So, Cymbeline is complicated, but, uh, you know, Pericles, that's got a wall of skulls in there. So, just saying. <laughs> um, no, but I, I think you're right. The late romances, they, in spite of their problems, and I think there are a lot of plot problems in these plays, they, they are enchanting and they are transportive. And one, you know, one question that I went away with this adaptation was, did I feel, for all their horrors, especially in terms of uh, the misogyny in, in some of these romances, did I feel transported all at all, though, in Almoreda's Cymbeline? And I liked its gritty and greasy look and feel. I liked its costumes, its set, and its sound design, but I didn't feel like it had an emotional or intellectual center. And I don't know if that's as much of a problem of the adaptation as it is a problem of the play itself, but it becomes a problem of the adaptation when you're going to take something with such a complex plot and such a rich genre, or at least a historically rich or laden genre. Um, you have to make some choices and you can amplify motives, you can amplify characters, and instead I, I, I felt I felt like this adaptation while it looked good didn't really have a reason for being does that make any sense why should we care what's what's setting this in motion just besides its own interior plot and i think you could argue that about cymbeline the play itself but i still think there's enough in the text of cymbeline uh that we can you know think about issues of nationhood and rome and britain we can think of ideas about masculinity in these plays but here that a lot of that got gutted in the modern adaptation of the of the biker gang so i guess we should maybe at this point talk about now that we have some overall impressions and in, in genre placement um and we have the uh texts plot i guess uh does anyone want to take a stab at just summarizing how amarieta um adapts cymbeline for his for his version I kind of, the takeaway that I got from the text itself was that as with a lot of the um, the plots in, in the late romances, it's kind of about redemption and um, forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So let me just stop you, Mark, and do, and just take a moment to just set up the, pl- the movie. The movie. And then let's That's come back true. to that. Yeah. So basically what the movie does is it sets it in an American town with a biker gang and a corrupt police force, essentially. Yeah. So the police, it's the town of Rome, and therefore the police force is the Rome Authority. sheriffs or Roman yeah. authorities. And then Ed Harris is symboling as the king of the Britain Motorcycle Club, which seemed a bit on the right. nose. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I thought that was okay. I mean, you think about those clubs, they do have that kind of structure sometimes to them. That's true, that's true. Kingpin kind of deal. Qual- yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the fiefdom, like it's a small fiefdom where the the leader of the gang makes everyone swear loyalty to him and has sort of a family, kind of a cross between a mafia family and the biker gang mm-hmm. in terms of the kind of way it was structured. That's a good point. So yeah, so you've got the two sides are Cymbeline, king of the Britain motorcycle gang, and then the Romans are the police, but they're on the take. And the whole thing about the tribute is about bribery, presumably, but whether or not they're going to get the police want their cut, and if they don't get it, they end up in a shooting war with the gang. So you've got that set up. So then the queen is just the wife of Cymbeline, and you've got the son and the stepson, and all the other figures are just there. 
And I, knowing that that was going to be the setup, assumed it was going to be an adaptation, like a rewritten screenplay, and was really quite astonished when they started, opened their mouths and started speaking the, the lines, lines from Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah I, th- I thought the same. I thought the same, Avon. I was, and I'm still undecided about how I, how effective I think it was. I was expecting it to be a 10 things I hate about Jews sort of deal where it takes the plot mm-hmm. and then it, it's inspired right. from there. But this was, this was the text. Or at least yeah, it was a, and a fraction. Obviously, of the text. it was a cut text and it moved around. And one of the things they did was give a lot of lines to different people. So mm-hmm. there's a bunch of lines that are lines, but are not said by the character that says it in the play in order to simplify things or move around some of the um, exposition from one place to another so that it made it easier for us. Or like the whole speech that the cop gives to Posthumus. When he's showing him those pictures and explaining all of oh, that, that wasn't uh, oh, okay. It's not. It's not Lu- Lucius, Lucius who right, says okay. that because he never, basically, never meets Posthumus. Right, really, right. it's. Uh, I don't remember now who it is, but it's somebody else entirely who says those lines, and it's an entirely different um, place in the play. I think it's near the beginning. So yeah, so it's it, it's adapted, but all of the lines, as far as I can tell, even I think the opening voiceover at the beginning, I think that's in the play too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's actually because I, I try to follow along in the text uh, while I'm watching mm-hmm. these. It might be a drawback in terms of, you know, analyzing it as a film, but, you know, analyzing it as an adaptation of Shakespeare, it gives me a sense mm-hmm. of what sort of choices they're making and... The I had to hunt around. Uh, this was the second play I had read in my year of Shakespeare, Cymbeline. Um, right. So my, 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 mem- my memory wasn't as fresh on it. Um, but that was actually, those lines I think were spoken by a vision that Posthumus has of his father uh, late in the That's play. That's right. That's right. The ghost. Yeah, the yeah. ghost. Um, and then, you know, one example that I noticed too was Cornelius, who's the doctor. Um, mm-hmm. In the very beginning of the play is when he we reveal that he's not going to fulfill the queen's request to make a poison because uh, hideously she, right. he's he's seen her use these poisons on cats and dogs. He says, uh, which is just a, a an excruciatingly ex- exquisitely excruciating detail that Shakespeare gives us, um, and we learn only at the very end that that's why he did it. So. Um, mm-hmm. That that probably oh, they do have the scene. But... I, I thought there were a lot of touches that were interesting that way. They have the scene where he's giving it to her in the back of a veterinary hospital. Hmm. Like he seems to be a vet, not a doctor. Yeah, which I think, which, which in some of those choices, I, I think were really interesting choices. And I think those were, mm-hmm. I think those were successful. Did you guys did it work to use Shakespeare's text with this sort of Baz Luhrmann era Shakespeare adaptation look of a film? And feel of a film. I kind of got the the feeling while watching it that it was almost as if there were two stories being told. There was the story being told by the text and the story being told by the visuals. Mm-hmm. And they were, you know, kind of commenting on each other, mm-hmm. but they were sort of running in parallel. Yeah, that actually that that crystallizes something I felt as well. Because I was gonna say that when I when they first started, like the when they opened their mouth and I I hadn't realized it was gonna be that and mm-hmm. then it was, it was jarring because it wasn't what I expected and it there was a mismatch. But I found that that lessened very quickly. My reaction in the end was that I was really surprised at how well it worked and how quickly it seemed natural, except it didn't ever seem natural. It felt like it was a very highly stylized movie to me um, in lots of different ways. 
And so it did. It felt like it was always sort of um, artificial, like they were, but but not in a bad way. I'm having trouble putting, putting my finger on it, but not in a bad way. Not mm. that I thought this is stilted or this is weird or these people wouldn't talk like that. I, I, that's not what I felt. I didn't feel like I was being asked to swallow something implausible because yeah. somehow it all seemed surreal. It was surreal. Yeah. It and was I kind a bit of liked surreal. that. It was kind of surreal. It was kind of washed out a little bit, kind of mm-hmm. may, maybe maybe in that sort of like a hazy SoCal sort of, you know, slightly. It's almost dreamlike. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a jaundiced streetlight. You're kind of coming down from a high sort of a feel, um, mm-hmm. which, which is interesting. I, I think some, I think to, in large part, the six, you know, it was, it worked for me because a few of the actors, I think, believably delivered the lines. I think Ed Harris mm-hmm. and Ethan Hawke were able to deliver their lines in character Mm-hmm. And very and very naturally, I think Cornelius too. Um, we can get back to Imogen and Posthumus later. I think they're the sort of central characters of our play, and you know, I'm sure we'll talk about them more in depth. But in general, you know, it's a star-studded film. So you got Ethan Hawke, you know, Ed Harris. Um, those are the two big ones. Uh, you know, John Leguizamo too. Um, but you know, their years of acting and their years of, I'm sure, theater, and they're serious actors too. It it was it was kind of fun to see them like really understand how to deliver Shakespearean lines in an odd context. I, I think in other people's hands, it might not have been as good, but mm-hmm. with those two actors, I think that yeah, it it felt it felt eerily natural. Is it was it? Yeah, the, yeah, that's actually a good phrase for it. Eerily natural, which is sort of the feeling or maybe naturally eerie um and which yeah. <laughs> you know there's all the halloween imagery maybe that's a f- an overall feeling of the play that we're we're supposed to get i think the halloween imagery worked in this adaptation um and mm. I, I don't get a halloween feel per se in the play but i do get a lot of no. imagery about clothing and fabrics in the play so maybe that's a resonance there that uh, the you know Almereda well, and, and false, with. false seeming, and false yeah, teaming, false yeah. There's a bunch of people who actually take on different roles or personas, or dis- di- there's multiple disguises. Then there's people like the queen who is deceiving everyone, and there's the doctor deceiving everyone, and then there's <laughs> Yakumo coming in and deceiving and pretending he is what he isn't, and multiple layers of deception. So, I think deception and false appearance is definitely a theme. So to play that up visually with those Halloween elements makes sense uh, given the cultural context I think. right yeah and you know as as was uh yeah. kind of talking about a bit earlier uh it's sort of one of the the running themes of the the romances of you know about forgiveness mm-hmm. and you know reuniting and so forth and in in the tempest for instance we we get the, the the idea that forgiveness is not something to be earned but is to be given and it's more about what it does for the giver than the receiver right here we don't get any in, in this play, we don't get that kind of complex treatment of the, the idea. And so, I I mean, we can either just say, well, these forgivenesses are just a pro- plot problem. Like, what does Posthumus do to, to be worthy of being forgiven by Imogen? Mm-hmm. But I think it's more interesting to perhaps sort of give Shakespeare the benefit of the doubt and assume he was trying to do something with this idea. And in a sense, I guess, it, to my mind, there's this idea of it, the innate goodness of people. But that is is kind of in contrast to what the film is doing right. because all of the characters are not innately good, right? Mm-hmm. We've got a bunch of drug dealers and crooked cops mm-hmm. and, you know, none of them are forgivable in that sense. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, just with one line, basically 
the the king makes it up with with Rome mm-hmm. by saying, "Oh, it was my wife all along." Yeah, and you know, uh, Imogen just rides off into the sunset now. Husband who tried to kill her, who tried to kill her, mm-hmm. and made a bet about her uh, her chastity. Her chastity. So I wonder if it's trying to be kind of absurd about the idea of forgiveness. What is forgiveness in a world like this? Hmm. Hmm. It is a gritty, grimy world. And people are quick to do what's expedient, I suppose. I just... Yeah, uh, to pick up on that and, and on what you said, John, about the moral... Yeah, what's the motivation here? Yeah. Where's the motivation? Yeah. And I think one of the, you know, the biggest change is to make Cymbeline a criminal. Yeah. And Rome a criminal cop, right? Yeah. That's... Everything else, the fact that it's modernized and stuff, that doesn't change the the meaning of the text necessarily at all. Mm-hmm. Though there are always elements like gender, especially, that, yeah. that updating it does affect. But by making Cymbeline in particular, Rome, I don't think it matters as much, but make, making Cymbeline in particular into somebody who's problematic does not begin to cover it. I thought that really is the biggest change. And I, I, I think it made for maybe a better, a more interesting movie mm. than a just you know, a noble king betrayed by everyone around him, Right. you know, who who is a little too quick to anger. And that's really the only thing that's wrong with him, because that's in the play. That's pretty much it. He just gets too angry too fast and he's too credulous with his queen. But other than that, he doesn't do anything wrong. But with all of the stuff they gave us in the business of the movie, not yeah. the added lines, yeah. but the things we have to do, like the torture the scenes torture and, and, the, the and the murder and the murders and... of the of the uh, cops. Right. Like yeah. that scene where they have them walking up and just cold cocking the cop. Yeah. in the car and and the final battle and the way it's portrayed with them flamethrowing you know killing cops with flamethrowers and stuff like that he's terrifyingly horrifying mm-hmm. and so suddenly it's a very different story because yeah he doesn't do anything he doesn't do anything to gain our sympathy in that sense in fact he ends up being sort of a villain and at the end everybody's the the great Sort of reconciliation is between everybody else, and the point about him is he's you know he's the lucky recipient of everybody else's reconciliation and joy, and they and then doesn't kill everybody, right? Like he's the one who at the end was going to kill everyone. Yeah. So yeah. having it that he's going to execute all of them, and then he doesn't. It's not about his redemption. It's just about them escaping him. Yeah. And he still is the tyrant at the yeah. end. Well, which is why I thought it was fitting that that Imogen and Cosmos uh, sort of slink away without yeah. anyone really noticing. Yeah, they end up looking like they're fleeing, they're like fleeing. they're running yeah. away together. Yeah, I've, and I'm, I've been thinking about the depiction of Rome as corrupt because I think the play has a very complicated view about the relationship between... It doesn't, I don't think the text ever uses the word England. I think it's always Britain, which is interesting. That's, I guess for Shakespeare's day, that'd be, that'd be calling up an ancient past. And uh, I think there was an ancient king, Cymbeline, an ancient Britain king, Cymbeline, who was Bethius. ruling, Bethius, who was uh, ruling at the time of Augustus Caesar. So historically that existed. So then we have, you know, we have, we have Shakespeare playing with the history of, his homeland, uh, mythically mm-hmm. and historically, at least for his understanding, and then Rome. Rome is an invading force in the play, but it's not exactly all bad. I think that no. Rome represents kind of, I guess, like a cosmopolitanism or something that um, to be associated with Rome, I feel in the play is a good thing, but also to be British in an ancient sense is also good too. So there's a whole, I, you know, I, I think... 
it's it's probably hard for us to understand now, but I think for Shakespeare and Shakespeare's audience and his collaborators, I, I think nationality and nationhood and and I and that sort of level of identity is much more conspicuous for them. And I'm just speculating here. I think now we read Shakespeare mm-hmm. much more uh, the personal level, the the interior level, which is there. But ideas about nationhood, I think, are much bigger. In you know, in Shakespeare's historical imagination, and I think it's very important for this play. I, I don't know what he's getting at, but I think there is something important about. I guess it's. I mean, maybe you might even see it echoed today in in, in terms of Brexit dealings, and we're, we're we're part of the global community, but at the same time, we're separate from it. There's maybe there's a historic Britishness there that this play wants to get at in light of Rome, but but Rome here is not all bad. The the invading and the tribute, maybe that's bad, but Britain pays it in the end and there's peace and everybody's happy. And then that gets cut out of all of this. So cut out that level of 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 the thematics and what's going on and Shakespeare's text and then then flip Cymbeline and make Cymbeline a, an evil kingpin. Cymbeline's not a great guy in the play, uh, but like he said, yeah. he's not firing there's off a machine like gun. So, and it just leaves me with this lump of what do I what do I do with this lump? What am I supposed what am I supposed to understand more about humanity here? And I'm still I'm still reaching for it. I don't know what the I don't know what the I don't know what the play says about it, which means I don't know what the film says about it. Either of you have any, you know, takeaways about what like statement this this film was making or did it just kind of happen for you too? Let me speak first to something about the play and the Rome and Britain thing, because I do think that I wanted to pick up on one thing you said about that. I think you're right. Rome isn't the bad guy, per se. I think Cymbeline is it, it's placed in a moment of British history that there's British myth about. And Cymbeline is a good it, it's the king who fought for British independence. So from that perspective, there's this, um, you know, British nationalism at play. But for the English, even at Shakespeare's time, maybe especially at Shakespeare's time, it's starting out the whole empire, right? The right. So the equation of England as the inheritor of Rome's imperial ambitions is definitely there in the Elizabethan period, right? Elizabeth is one of the inheritors of that mantle and, and is being shaped as the empress. We're not at Victorian period yet, but it, that narrative is starting already with the new world and all the rest of it. So Rome and its imperial ambitions are also not evil, because if Rome and its imperial ambitions are evil, then England and its imperial ambitions are evil. So that can't isn't how it's being constructed. So you have, I think, this interesting tension between British independence and British nationalism historically, and Rome as, as you say, the cosmopolitan civilizing imperial force that is good and has also this political sophistication the sophistication of nations dealing with nations, which you get when the when the men deal with one another, and that the queen is sort of subverting by making him be all proud when he shouldn't be proud, and things like that. That there's this um, sort of real politic that is going on that she's messing up, and so I think that's kind of the tension that's being walked in the play, and the fact that Posthumus goes off to Rome, I think, is not in any way accidental. You know, he goes off to the city that is at the same time the source of power, but also the source of corruption, because it's that Italian guy who comes up and tries to corrupt his chaste lady. So I think that is a very important theme. And you're completely right that by making Rome the theoretical good guys, but actually the bad guys with corrupt cops, corrupt cops, you know, they're not just another rival because it could have easily been another rival gang, rival gang, right? They could have made it another bicycle gang, bicycle gang. 
drug people gang. don't say bicycle gangs no. <laughs> they say biker <laughs> gangs <laughs> That's like the Goonies or the Stranger Things, yeah. Bicycle again. (laughs) No, but so in 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 listening to you, it 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 jogged this idea. So maybe we're inverting it. Maybe the maybe we can think about the that dynamic inverted in this adaptation. How do we make sense of the police force if it's corrupt? So what what so it's sort of like a if. Cymbeline's pointing the the moral needle north, and the, maybe the play mm-hmm. is is starting from the needle pointing south. So, what what is goodness? What is evil? How do we? Mm-hmm. How bad is Cymbeline if he's dealing with corrupt cops? Now, the the only reason I hesitate, only reason I hesitate to explore that much further is because we didn't get given that the the, the text of the play gets so much cut in the adaptation, we just don't get to see what. Uh, Lucius uh, Gaius Lucius sounds like as a corrupt Roman police officer. So the movie doesn't give us a whole mm-hmm. lot of what does it mean for a, a police force to be corrupt. No, and we get could no have. civilians, right? Mm. We don't get any. We don't even get any. They could have put in, but didn't. Some of those wordless scenes. Uh, they could have shown us the cops, um, you know, roughing up innocent civilians or. They do show them roughing up someone in the police station, but that's presumably... But he's presumably somebody from the... It's, from the it's part of the whatever. sort of retribution, yeah. right? It's back and forth. But that's also to show us how bad they are, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, they could easily have given us lots of scenes of them going in and scaring small shop owners or, right. you know, demanding protection money or, you know, uh, raping women. Or, like, there's all sorts of ways they could have shown us that they were a force for evil in the town, that somehow the bikers could be then our heroes against them. We do we get, get, we do get no. the news media, though. We see cuts to the newspaper and yeah. then... And, um, you know, I, like I love yeah. some of that Britain. There was one headlight that was, was uh, Britain's versus Rome, Romans Blubber. or something like yeah. that. It, looked <laughs> it, like, it was very, sub- very, it was very Simpsonian. Yeah, it was like nuts, yeah, and, was, gut, was nuts and gum together at last. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there were some good ones. But I, I think they could have, but I do not think they did set it up as if it was an inversion where the bikers are really the ones keeping the law and order and making, right, right. you know, the, the sort of heroes on the wrong side of the law. They were not. They no, were no, awful. And yeah. the things they did to one another and you know, the way they yeah. tortured Pisanio, that was clearly awful. So I, I think um, they, I don't think it was an inversion or, or if it was, it's that in the play, neither Cymbeline nor the Romans are bad guys. And in the movie, they both are. Which then points us to the likes of Belarius and Posthumus and Imogen. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some level of... I think there's some level of valorization of uh, mm-hmm. Belarius and the two boys he raises removed yeah. from yeah, society. Yeah. Wales is this sort of, it's a wild place, but at the same time, it's independent of, it, it's free from both the corruption and the the, the cosmopolitanism. So it's mm-hmm. uh, more under, under self-invention, I suppose. But then one of the twin boys brutally kills Cloten kind of abruptly. So even even there, there is this sort of primal, actually motiveless violence. And then Imogen, yeah, Imogen. I was I was I was hoping that the adaptation would, and I think it did try to center on Imogen in ways, but I didn't get. I think she was a good actress, but I didn't get a lot of emotional depth. I would think that the way to tell this story then is, you know, we have these two young lovers, and they're they're completely at the whim of the of all these forces around them 
and they're trying to make sense of it and they can't make sense of it and they're torn apart and all these things are conspiring against them. And I didn't get the emotional disorientation. I didn't get any rage from Posthumus or any sadness from Posthumus. I think I got more of that from Imogen. But so then, you know, in trying to make sense of trying to find a center of the play in the adaptation, I was looking for it in, in the two young lovers and I, I didn't quite get it there either. I think that the adaptation wanted us to find it there, especially in Imogen, but Imogen as played was, was a bit cryptic and opaque. Um, I mean, yeah, there were moments when she was, when she was quite moved. I think the diner scene, when she learned from Pisanio that Imogen, mm-hmm. that Posthumus wanted to to kill her. I think, I think she was effective there, but elsewhere, I, I kind of felt like, uh, the actress and the actor had to read the play and didn't know what to make of it and just kind of did their best to get something across and did a passable job. But, uh, I'm still left without a core. I still don't know what, what this play is informing me about, you know, identity or humanity. And, and those two who, they would have had the opportunity, I think, in the film to do it, but um, I didn't. I didn't quite get it. Now, you guys might disagree. What did you guys get from Posthumous and Imogen as played in the movie? I think what you want to see from those parts in this film, and I don't know that they were successful, but I think this is maybe what they were aiming for: is how two people with some virtue survive in this really unvirtuous, unvirtuous world, and can they exist? Can they maintain that level of of virtue with? the stuff that's going on around them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially with the, I mean, the play is very focused on how good a person Posthumus is. And the movie retained that, all the bits where people say he's, you know, he's the best person there is in the king. Nobody else is even fit. And they're always meaning it morally Mm because he has no position. So it's always about how his morals and his virtues outstrip everybody else. And, And it's repeated throughout the movie. And I guess the question is, does the movie give us any reason to believe that that, yeah and the problem is with the you know the plot as it is it's bad enough in shakespeare what he does but once you update that and you make it the movie for instance they're not married in the movie in the play they're married at the beginning when he leaves they've already they're they're legally married Mm -hmm. therefore there's at least some argument to be made that she would be committing some you know that it's i don't I can't even bring myself to say that it's okay to test her virtue or whatever, but at least there's a marriage bond. Mm -hmm. In the movie, they're not married. They're merely pledged to one another, you know, and goodness knows if they're even going to marry because you don't need to in in this new context. Therefore, the idea of testing whether she's sort of faithful to him is that much more distasteful, that much more unreasonable. And... And then the murder, again, killing your wife because she's been unfaithful to you is pretty horrific, but at least under Shakespearean contexts, you know, an adulterous wife is a criminal and there's like at least some justification for it. But in this context, your girlfriend might have slept with someone else, so you're going to put a hit on her? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, as soon as you update it, it's that it's much... It's hard to rescue that. <laughs> it, it's really hard to rescue that. Like, I don't care how remorseful you are. And then, of course, the final scene has to be him hitting her. Yes. And now yeah. they play it as accidental, of course. Yeah. But nonetheless, basically, first he murders her, then he hits her, and then she's like, I love you. <laughs> so... So I found that that was I, I, constrained by the play. Like those are not plot yeah. elements you can remove. Then the whole wager scene. So but, that that scene where yeah. we first meet Yakimo. Yeah. In the text, it's it's sexist as all hell, but it's funny. It's meant to be funny. Each you know you've got oh, yeah. a group of people. You have a table of 
uh, European men drinking, and they're all saying why their ladies are the best or the worst. And it's mm-hmm. funny. And that whole comic element, when we first have that wager. Yeah, it's not funny at all. It's not yeah. funny at all, and it happens quick. And there's really no motivation for Posthumus to test his girlfriend in the first place. Yeah, why does he take the wager? Exactly. In the play, you get a lot more texts and musings about, well, I know she's so faithful that, of course, this wager is stupid because my my wife is going to be faithful to me. Of course, it's contrived. But mm-hmm. at the same time, again, there is, not justifiably, but there there is a motivation. Um, well, I, you know, mm-hmm. of course, I trust my wife. Um, and here it just was, yeah, I'll do it. He, he seemed very, he seemed sort of dead to the world. And not even his girlfriend really lit him up all that much. Um, maybe other than that first scene where they, they kiss. Yeah. Um, I thought that was kind of an interesting reading, as it were, of the line that Imogen says to Yakima, where she says, when he was here, he was very sad. He was generally sad. You know, When she asks, is he merry with you? It's as if they picked that line up and said, okay, that's his character. That's yeah. who he is. He's morose and he's he's reserved. And maybe that's, as you say, Mark, maybe that's about, it's a reading of how do you survive in the world mm. like that? You have to become withdrawn and... Callous, yeah. I think, I, I, I do think and, that's... And, you know, but that might be a, a consistent interpretation, mm. but it does leave us with a kind of unsympathetic hero. Yeah. Yeah, I do, I do think that's a, a really interesting way of considering it is, is what you observed, Mark, about the word that came to mind was cynicism. So how, how can we not... How can we be become quick and, Yeah, how can we become cynics or how can we be quick Or how can we and, not become cynics? Yeah, how can we, we be quickened out of our own cynicism? In a world like that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't... I, the only uncynical thing in, in the movie was probably them riding away on the scooter. And interesting to note, Imogen was driving the scooter, which yeah. for most of the play, Imogen is the subject of... She loses... As the play progresses, she becomes less and less powerful. She goes from making choice, then mm-hmm. she loses posthumous, and then she becomes, you know, she's supposed to be killed, and she's then a she pawn. gets yeah. double-crossed, and then she's supposed to be raped, and then by Cloten, and then she's, and even in the final scene, she's still dressed as a boy. She's not as a woman yet, so mm-hmm. she's still, as a, it's still very masculine. But then she drives, she drives away on the motorcycle, and I thought that was... I thought that was a very subtle, but it was a nice touch, especially calling back. When they were doing the exposition on the title cards, um, they mm-hmm. quoted they quoted a line about, you know, be wary of boats that aren't steered or something. In the very end, she is driving the scooter. So there was some minimal element of them taking control over their own lives. Mm-hmm. And that was there. But I think we're kind of looking for things to hang some sort of a, a meaning hat on. And Well, I, I kind of think that, Mark, you put your you hit the nail on the head. I mm. think it is absurdist. Yeah. I think it's not just absurd. I think it's absurdist. Mm-hmm. I don't know consciously. I don't know if it like is actually actively trying to be philosophically absurdist mm-hmm. or not, but I think they were aiming for surreal. I mean, there are definitely surreal sequences. There's this heightened, various types of heightened and odd, oddly shot and, you know, mm-hmm. um, juxta- strange juxtapositions, the bikers and their fancy masks that made me laugh out loud and, you know, some really bizarre elements. And, you know, it's absurdist in the sense that nobody's actions really end up having fixed, meaningful consequences no. yeah. because nothing is going to change. Except for Cloten who gets beheaded <laughs> and his head gets chucked. Yeah, in but, the river. But, but I mean, that's not going to change it. Like, death, there's lots of deaths, 
but they aren't going to change anything. Uh, yeah, bikers will go. still be bikers. The cops will still be cops. It ends up just as it started. Yeah. So Return instead of ending quo. up with a sort of Britain's incorporation into the larger Roman world, which is the end mm -hmm. result of the play, which is can be seen as at least a good thing or a, an element of moving in the historical you know, narrative forward towards what Britain later becomes. Instead, we just have it returning to the ongoing corruption of a, a town, you know, with a corrupt force, a police force and a, and a biker gang that rules it. Nobody's learned anything. As you say, nobody's earned forgiveness. No, so yeah. nobody's learned anything, <clears throat> changed their, mo you know, he's not going to not be a criminal anymore. Belarius is returned to the fold so that he can be a criminal again. Yeah. The boys who have been raised in this, as you say, a sort of unspoiled way, have been brought into the fold of the biker no, they've gang brought, They've been brought into the fold. So all that's yeah. going to become to them is they're going to become just as bad as everyone else. And the media too, the, the few glimpses of the media we get, that they, it, it, it seems like it seemed very tabloid, like it was war continues. Yeah. It was very kind of glamorized yeah. in a way. So I think in that sense, it's kind of taking the meaning, but, you know, an absurdist treatment would suggest there is no meaning. That's the yeah. significance of an absurdist approach to it would be to say uh, what you have instead is a whole bunch of people taking what they think are meaningful actions within their own life. But the net result is this. And it does have this plot full of ridiculous plot contrivances. Yeah. And so in a way, I think that maybe that's an appropriate... It's, you can like it or not like it or feel moved or not by it. But the, the plot is absurd. And things happen, as it were, by accident and for silly reasons. So you can take it as something that works or doesn't work for you. But I don't think it's an unreasonable reading of the text to decide to do that with. Like it's an it's a play that is in a sense ripe for that kind of a treatment, especially as you say, John, if you remove the political elements, if you remove the parts that do tie it to a larger narrative, a more meaningful consequence of their actions and becomes everything is working in this vacuum. So I kind of think that that is that lack of a moral center may be is deliberate. deliberate. Of it, yeah. 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 And in that case, it succeeds for its point. Yeah, it would succeed that way. Everyone mm -hmm. seems to be, I guess there's a level of a level of resignation. Mm -hmm. People yeah. are, mm -hmm. there was no urgency in the adaptation. And there were emotions, but they weren't grandiose in any way. So I, I, do, I, I do see those threads coming together. Mm -hmm. And it's just sort of people are doing things because that's what they do or because they're reacting yeah. because they have to react. And there's, what's the point of trying to correct the system or change the system? We just need to sort mm -hmm. of get by in the system. Not even really survive, just kind of get by. Yeah. Well, and anyone who makes a moral choice is punished for it. So Pisanio, mm. who makes the most moral choices in the whole thing, I think, gets tortured, gets and... tortured for it and nearly killed. And then, you know, he survives. Sure. But he still suffered greatly for it. Uh, in the play, he's threatened with torture, but it's not actually said that he is tortured. But in in the movie, they show us quite a lot of it before they stop it. And they also they also light the queen's body on fire. That doesn't happen in the play. Um, yeah, mm. that was kind of an interesting no, element the, right there. Yeah, so I think I think that's perhaps the direction it was going, and I actually found that quite effective. Moving isn't maybe the quite the word for it, but engrossing maybe yeah. for me. And I also wanted to bring up again what you'd said, Mark, about the two layers commenting on each other. Right, yeah. I don't know if you have specific scenes in mind. Well, I had the, the, that scene with the photographs in mind, for instance. 
Yeah. So you had sort of one kind of narrative going on or the scenes where you see the violence going on, mm -hmm. like the torture scene with this, you know, kind of calm dialogue going on in mm -hmm. a sense while witnessing this horrific brutality. Well, and the other, I, I thought they did some stagings that were just I, in and of themselves just quite lovely. Hmm. Or lovely is not the right word, but amazing. The scene where, where Yakimo talks to Imogen and uses the iPad. Yes, yes. I loved it. I thought that was... Could have been corny, but I think it was well done. Mm -hmm. Same with the cell phone pictures in the in the bedroom. In the bedroom, yeah. And, and it, it, uh, it was on the one hand, it was the action commenting on the text. And on the other hand, it was, you almost watch it thinking... My God, did Shakespeare write this for an iPad? Like, I, I mean, it, it worked so well <laughs> that it was almost shocking in mm -hmm. how perfectly it seemed to match with what they did with it. And the one line that I just have to say was where I guess it's Cloten comes in to talk to Pisanio. Where's Imogen gone? And he opens the laptop and he says, oh, yes. I have yeah. the history of her yeah. travels yeah. here <laughs> in her browser, browser history. Yep. <laughs> it was it was almost... It was almost too clever, but it but but it wasn't too clever. It it was it was it was good. They yeah, did change yeah. uh, the text uses score instead of twenty miles. I'll I'll give them that. But I, I was amazed that they actually kept the trunk gag. I was very curious to see how are they going to adapt. So in 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 the original play, mm -hmm. Giacomo says that there's a gift for Cymbeline uh, after he's been spurned and then and then kind of repaired things with um, Imogen after trying to make mm -hmm. a move on her, and she goes, oh yeah, bring it in, and that's how he sneaks in. And he also does it for a trunk, a gig trunk. And I was amazed that they kept the trunk gag. And I was I was actually kind of applauding that because you could have devised any other way to get in, but they did it. And you got to see like a sweaty Ethan Hawke crawl out there. And I mean, his acting was just so good in that scene. But I, uh, kudos kudos to uh, Amorieta for, for keeping that detail. Uh, he, up he updated it where it was appropriate, but I think he also kept things and, and made it work at the same time. Yeah. They didn't shrink back from the absurdities of the plot. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, part of what I'm arguing here. Mm -hmm. You know, like the beheading yeah. and yeah. the throwing away the head. I mean, they could have had him just beat in the head, say, right? Yeah. Beat in his face so because that recognize him that's something. a totally in that world would be a completely plausible thing for somebody who murdered somebody. But no, they cut the head off and had, threw it away <laughs> and had her therefore go through that whole scene, which I thought, for the record, um, her performance in that scene was quite moving. The the head, yeah. the head, I mean, what his, his head? Where's his head? Yeah. 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 It, was, and it was almost was, it was almost slightly comic, too. Where is his head? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where's his head? Well, and it is. It was. It was. There was a hysteria to her. Yeah. You know? She also got tossed um, down a very, a very rough yeah. hill. I'm, I'm surprised she wasn't injured at all. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I thought uh, they didn't step back from the really ridiculous elements of that kind of contrivance. Yeah, they in fact doubled down. Played them on up it. sometimes. Yeah. yeah you yeah. know, all of those things which are the meat and drink of Shakespearean comedies but are ridiculous. But I, I thought the fact that they kind of worked within the movie suggests to me that the whole framing of the movie mm. was nothing has to make logical sense. One step doesn't have to be connected to the other. Everybody lives in this disconnected world. That's what, that's what life is. Mm. Yeah. And, and also the, the decisions to, you know, I use the word sort of gritty and greasy and grimy. This is not mm -hmm. an august, pardon the pun, Rome. This is not a glorious, if you know, ancient assembly. Their mansion is is run down. It's yeah. it's big and it has some nice things, but you know, these are not the Kardashians here, and this is not Augustus no. Caesar. It's no. very run down. The the costumings 
deliberately shabby. People look very tired and sort of just trying to... I I think absurdist is the key word, and we see them not trying to make sense of their world, but just sort of trying to to get by in the world. And I think all the visual elements added to that too. Even with um even with some of the decisions about them drinking, we always saw them drinking out of those cheap little plastic disposable cups. They were never drinking out of anything like a glamorous tumbler. Um even their drinkware was was quite uh quite dingy. Um and it, and it gave you that feel. So in that sense I think there is a deliberate inversion of, you know, demoting the grandeur into the pettiness of being the king of a gang not a king of a grand old nation yeah pettiness of it and i I didn't feel that lucius the police officer the sheriff i suppose or the the head of the the police department Mm -hmm. i don't think they were ironic at all i don't think there was a lot of irony is not the word i would describe it they took themselves seriously but not self-seriously but without irony at the same time the movie didn't wink at you no but it also had but it was it was comic in an ironic way and that's kind of a hard thing to pull off and, and i guess i guess that is absurdism there i guess that's i guess that's the the word we have to use for that 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 genre element mm-hmm. so we, we go from a romance it, to an absurd to an absurdist drama yeah i mean it had irony of the very dramatic sort not just the irony of you know standard plots where we know something they don't know or whatever but the irony what you're talking about mark where the text is commenting on the visuals yeah, or the visuals yeah. are commenting on the text i mean that is that kind of irony i, I agree with you entirely john that it doesn't have um what some might call the infection of our times, which is that everything yeah. is self-conscious and yeah. self-aware. Yeah. Not kind of. po- it wasn't yeah, yeah, postmodern. Yeah. It, wasn't post-modern. it was not postmodern to me at all. No, but it was it was ironic in its... It was textually ironic or dramatically, but not even the dra- dramatic irony of a tragedy or whatever, mm-hmm. but that irony of, of, say, of commenting on itself, not as a self-awareness, not as a joke to the audience, but as a look at this, look at what's happening and, you know, what is this? What does this violence mean? What does this mean? What are, what's the disconnect between what people are doing and what the results are or what they think they're doing or what they actually are doing or, what they think their position is or their seriousness is and what it really is. What's that disconnect? Yeah. If, if there's no consequences for immoral decisions, Giacomo doesn't really get mm-hmm. punished, but there's also no rewards for moral behavior, then you are without a core. And yeah. you see people sort of that em- emptied, sort of, uh, I wouldn't say eviscerated, although this was kind of, it had some graphic moments, but sort of a hollow, empty, tired yeah. people. And that's kind of how we're left feeling, I think, in a way, mm-hmm. right? It's it's bleak in that sense. It tires you out, too. It like, yeah. you know, there's a lot that's it's quite overwhelming, some of the violence mm-hmm. and some of the graphicness and some of the sort of assaults mm-hmm. towards the end on on you as a, as a viewer. And But then in the end, you're left with what, you know, what was the end mm-hmm. result of that? And you don't get that catharsis. Yeah, all the actors sort of, are so small time. Well, we, we, we fear um, no, we fear no more. That that's the line. That's a line from the play. Yeah, fear no more. The heat of the sun, indeed. Yeah, it's a, it's a lovely it's a lovely poem, and the the twin boys speak it. Uh, but in the movie adaptation, it's incorporated into some interesting woodcut slash sort of screen printing art that yeah. Posthumus does, and and the sentiment fear no more. I think that fits in with what how we're analyzing the play here. It's sort of a passive safety. We're not we're not making the world a better place. We're not actively restoring well, anything. We're sort of no longer 
fearing that the guns, you know, pointed at her head, uh, at her back, you know. It's a moment of cessation from fear. And since the whole point of that poem in the Shakespeare is you fear no more because you're dead. Because you're dead. So only in death is there surcease from sorrow. And therefore, if if the message of the movie, I might put it strongly, but if the sort of sense you get from the movie is that life is simply surviving, the only thing that is puts an end to it is not the choices you make, not the moral decisions you make, which make it better, but death. Yeah. Only death is going to end this un- unending sort of cycle of violence and everything. And only not by making it better, but just ma- by removing you from it. So you no longer have to suffer it. Now, I'm going to make a possibly extremely uneducated comparison because my philosophical background is weak and kept that way by my general hatred of philosophy. <laughs> but <laughs> to go along with absurdism, I think there's also like existentialism going on here where it's about there isn't a moral there are choices right. that the purpose of life is simply to make choices. And only when you can make choices, are you an agent within the world? And if you aren't, you're being acted on by it. And that's sort of the only good and the only bad. That's really simplified and I'm sure wrong. But nonetheless, when I think about the few things I've read that are existentialist, they are this absurdity, right? Yeah. They're this emptiness where, like yeah, that's exactly, and, and I've read so little, I, I hate to be, a, be the person who's like, <laughs> yeah. I've read L'Etranger and this feels like it. But that's really all I really want to say is I've read L'Etranger and this feels like it, where violence happens, but it doesn't seem doesn't to come anything. out of anything yeah. or mean anything or have the consequences you might think it has, where emotions exist but in a sort of detached way where you can't quite come to grips with them you can't make them part of yourself you don't know what to do with them this double layering of the way the movie kind of works with the text i think fits in with that so that's sort of the sense i get from Mm. it and on that level i think it's really kind of a really fascinating adaptation Mm -hmm. yeah so you've got removal or detachment Mm -hmm. Bellarius mm-hmm. and the twins are removed from the warfare and the gang, mm-hmm. you know, the gang police warfare. And that's how they get by is, is physically removing themselves. At the very end, you've got Imogen and Posthumus and they physically remove themselves. So it's as if mm-hmm. it's as if to say those actors are are powerless to change the world as it exists and the violence in it and and can't make things better or even kind of worse by the choices they make within it but they have to remove themselves for it and and it still doesn't change that world by their absence that the the actors and the 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 nastiness is going to continue um but the, the few glimpses we get of people who are fearing no more are physically dead to that world because they're no longer in it. Yeah, whether that's removal, maybe you can do it by removal, or whether it's by death. You know, one thing I've been one thing I've been haunted by is I've been trying to when we watch these films and when I read a Shakespeare play, I, I try to think about the the image or, or the word or the words or lines that 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 stay with me, and the one that stayed with me for this film is of the queen performing uh, some of the songs in the film. So she's sort of the singer. Right. And, yeah, that was those were interesting. And it was, this, it was this small, dingy stage, but everybody was watching it with a kind of a deadpan look, and it was a very kind of a beautiful... The, the, the lyrics made it have, like, if, if, if uh, Morrissey was to cover Shakespeare, it kind of had that sort of feel in my mind. The Smiths meet Shakespeare, except way less jangly. Um, and and I, I don't know why... I don't know why it stayed with me, because... Maybe because that's a moment of art. It's a moment of meaning making. And anytime I, if I'm thinking about existentialism or, or nihilism or absurdism, I have to think about, so what does it mean to make 
choices in such a moral universe and mm-hmm. the decision to make art in that moral universe, especially for the queen being such a bad guy or a bad girl as she is in the play, um, is, is one that continues to haunt me. And, and I think that only continues to complicate the moral universe or immoral or amoral universe of Amarieta's, uh Cymbeline uh, by her having that kind of haunting performance, uh, almost like a, a Greek chorus. But yet she can't be a Greek chorus because she's a bad person in this play. She tried to kill Imogen and she, you know, pitted the king against his better wishes. Uh, and, and so maybe that's why I stayed with me is, oh man, she is, you know, maybe talk, talking with you guys makes me realize there is sort of a, an interior complexity to these characters and it's in their seeming deadness. Mm-hmm. The way somehow they're navigating existence in this meaningless existence. And I I think that scene is also fascinating because it is a moment of art making, but it's also somehow not, you know, as you say, their reactions don't show any emotional react like this. There's no connection being drawn between them, even though we feel so much that music is music is a harmonious is something that does connect Mm -hmm. people and that. And it's sort of, she's doing it in a way that looks like it's sexual, except there's no sexual response either. The king doesn't look turned on or captivated by her. And she looks sort of like she's just going through the motions. And so I think it, 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 the artisticness of it almost highlights the disconnect. And it's the one time we see an audience and, and maybe we're supposed to, are we supposed to be a stand in for that audience there? Maybe, yeah. I think maybe that should be where we end for now talking about this play, the movie. I mean, I'll just say that I liked it as a movie. Like, it always seems like a strange word when it's something that's sort of as grim as that movie. Yeah. And I really did like hearing the way they read the text. Yeah. Like, I actually found in the end, that was the thing I found really interesting, was how seamlessly the text seemed to work mm-hmm. in spite of all these things we've talked about. This is one that I, I think I might rewatch. I think I, mm-hmm. I think our, dis- I think our discussion uh, brought to life more life in a play of, of mm-hmm. deadness than than I would have realized on my own. That's why we have discussions and as people who live mm-hmm. in the universe. But um, I I'm very tempted to rewatch it now. I, I don't think the I don't I don't remember this at all when it came out. I don't think it was critically reviewed no. very well. But I think that uh, I think there's I think there's a lot more going on. Uh, it'd be very interesting to reread the play and rewatch them and see yeah. what he's doing philosophically here. Because I, I do think that both of you really, you know, uh, hit, hit, hit some big nails on the head. So I watched it not having reread the play with no knowledge of the plot going in. And now I've read the play and I would, wouldn't mind rewatching, re-watching it, it again yeah. with that. Because I think as an interpretation of Shakespeare, it's interesting because I do not think it is one that Shakespeare would recognize. Mm. You know, I don't think the meaning that we've just come up with, if we're right about it as an interpretation, I don't think Shakespeare would take an absurdist no. view of the world. <laughs> right. You know, like I don't it's think done that's something very different. That's a view and a theme mm-hmm. and the idea that there's meaninglessness and that your choices have no consequences. I don't think that's something Shakespeare intended or would even recognize as a reading of his play. I don't think that invalidates it, though. Obviously, they had to cut stuff to make that happen, but that's always true with Shakespeare plays, so that's not a problem. And therefore, I think, you know, it's it, it stands up there as one of the more interesting adaptations we've watched, hmm. I think, because it really takes the text and forces me to read it in a way I would not have read it. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's value added, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. 
it, and it continues to hit the refresh button on Shakespeare for yeah. our time. Um, I, I don't think we get, in terms of absurdist adaptations of Shakespeare, you, you, you probably get most of those in what, Macbeth, I would guess, if you're going to do that sort of a reading. Uh, maybe, yeah. maybe the big tragedies like Hamlet or Macbeth. It's kind of more obvious there. And I think as a result, it's a little bit less interesting. Mm-hmm. I am curious that, I mean, absurdism, obviously, as a philosophical movement would not have been a possibility for Shakespeare, but the idea, mm-hmm. ideas about choice and how that would have existed in his, in a Christian worldview that he had, but also one where that believed in things like, you know, fate and mm-hmm. the influences of the stars and the planets and that we are actors, but at the same time, we're not actors at the same time. There is a bind there. And now, and, and for Shakespeare, I don't think that would ever articulate itself as, as absurdist, but maybe he does, maybe he does hint at it there. I mean, I think some critics have written that Cymbeline is when Shakespeare gets bored and he's kind of, he's bored with humanity. And what mm-hmm. if Amrieta kind of took those criticisms literally and said, ah, but okay, so boredom, what's the, what's the correlative of, of, of boredom? That's sort of the cynicism or not even the cynicism, the absurdism. So, um, I think he's done, I think he's done something exciting here that didn't possibly get recognized first go around, uh, because we want and expect big meaning takes away when we have Shakespeare, but being challenged on the idea of there needing to be a big meaning takeaway and reframing how we're thinking about dealing with the world around us. That's, I mean, that, that's what it is. What Mark said before, what you said before, Mark, about how do we deal with the world around us? And that, that opens up whole new possibilities as a result of this. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually now rather fond of, of this adaptation. I think it shows too the value of looking at some of the works that aren't done so often. Yeah. Yeah. Because it gives more space. We aren't coming into it with as many expectations. It doesn't have the lines that everybody's waiting to hear in the context they know of them so well. The less without and more within. I think that's a line that Posthumus has. Uh, I probably just remember it from the first time I read it, but less without and more within. Uh, It's also just kind of a good Shakespearean motto, I suppose. Well, on that note, shall we wrap it up for now and... I should say, if you've hung with us till the end of this one, that we will not be putting out an episode in August because Mark and I are going to disappear out of the range of the internet (laughs) for a couple of weeks into the woods to our family's cottage. Fear no more. So we're not going to be able to. But fear no more. We'll be back in September. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So we'll come back in September. Oh, maybe with Julie Tamor's Titus Andronicus. Ooh. How does that strike you, John? I have never seen a any rendition of Titus Andronicus in any way, shape, or form, and I I, I think it would be a very interesting one to watch right now. I realize that it's we're sticking with the obscure, going from Cymbeline to Titus Andronicus. But somebody uh, reminded me that in fact that was one of the ones we'd had on our list early on because we watched Tamar's Tempest Tempest, right at the beginning, and so I think that might be an interesting one to restart the sure. The- and we do things we do things as we like it here. You know, that's that's how we rule. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> All right. With that, we'll be back then in September with probably Titus Andronicus. <laughs> and everyone have a good summer. Bye. Bye for now. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to As We Like It. You can find more episodes and more information about the show at theextracurricular.com and find more about Avon and Mark's other projects at alliterative.net. 
If you enjoyed today, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher, as your five stars can really help us reach new listeners. You can reach us all on Twitter. I'm at Alliterative. I'm at Avensara, A-V-E-N-S-A-R-A-H. And I'm at John Vox, J-O-N-V-O-X.